0: All right. I am, uh, as Spencer told you, I am a biographer. I want to talk about some individual lives for a moment. And this is something actually that my current subject that I'm writing about, Woodrow Wilson, uh, who was obviously president of the United States and lived a largely institutional life, but he always talked about how institutions must always be brought down to human scale too. In fact, he spoke a lot about the evils of business, but never business per se. It was the evils of certain individuals within business, for example. He was not an enemy of Wall Street, he was an enemy of people who tried to use Wall Street for their own means. Uh, I have a mission with my work which is not unlike that of the Academy of Achievement and not unlike why I suspect all of you are here, other than to have a nice few days in Hawaii. Uh, and that is basically, I, I subscribe in some measure to something that was called in the 19th century the great man theory, that that individual lives do make a difference, that the history of mankind as Carlisle said, is indeed the biographies of great men and if he were in the 20th century, he would have said, and women. Unfortunately, he was not. He was very Victorian, our Carlyle. So I wanted to tell you a little about uh, some of the people I have written about. Um, quite briefly. um, As Spencer indicated, um, I do take years. I actually generally take a decade for each of my books, Uh, with the exception of the memoir, an autobiographical memoir, um, about Catherine Hepburn uh, that I wrote shortly after her death, which was a really interesting story because it was somebody who spent 60 plus years as a star in her profession. It's almost an impossibility in show business, uh, but it's really just as difficult in almost any business, I think, to remain on top for six, almost seven decades. Uh, But she fits outside of a series of books that I've been thinking about writing since I was in my 20s, which was basically a giant apple pie, if you will, of biographies of 20th century American cultural figures, each one from a different different wedge. My first book, uh, as Spencer indicated, was about Maxwell Perkins. He was an East Coast, um, Harvard-educated, ninth-generation, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, who, and this is an interesting thing, I think, and I think I've already heard a lot of it in the last day, and we will hear more of it over the next two days. Maxwell Perkins was someone who broke in after Harvard as a newspaper writer, and then he went into the publishing business in the advertising department and so forth. And it was not until he was 32 years old that he tried something for the first time, which was editing a book. And he realized that his great gift was not in promoting books or in writing of any kind, but his great gift, he discovered at age 32, was in fact, nurturing others, was discovering and, and editing, developing other talent. And he did do just that with F. Scott Fitzgerald, with Ernest Hemingway, with Thomas Wolfe, with Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, went on for decades doing this, right up to James Jones, who wrote From Here to Eternity, Alan Payton's Cry the Beloved Country. So this was a man who came to his career really at a point that was his second act in life and always kept his eye open for the next new thing. The second book I wrote about, and to try to do my pie here, I was trying to go to the opposite end of the pie, the opposite end of the country. So whereas Max Perkins was this great northeastern figure, my second book was about Samuel Goldwyn. And I was looking for someone whose life would let me explore those six or seven East European Jews who came to America at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, and in essence, started the motion picture business. In the case of Sam Goldwyn, he was a teenage runaway from Warsaw, came to this country without a cent in his pocket, went upstate New York, where he began sweeping, uh, pushing a broom, quite literally, in a glove factory. He then became a glove maker He did that for several years before he became a glove salesman, finally became the greatest glove salesman in all of America. And at age 34, realized he wasn't that crazy about gloves. (laughs) But what he was sort of crazy about was a brand new thing that he saw lots of people were crazy about, and that was movies. And one hot August day in 1914, he, he actually went in for the first time to a movie theater and he saw a Western up on the screen, and by the time he walked out of that theater, he decided he was going to be part of the industry that actually produced that product. And that was the end of his glove career, and that was the beginning of a man born Shmuel Geldfish who became Samuel Goldfish, becoming Samuel Goldwyn, film producer. And it was he who really, literally helped establish Four studios that have gone on for decades, Paramount Studios, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios, United Artists Studios, and his own studio, the Samuel Goldwyn Production Company. Interesting story. Now, I'm currently researching, I hope to start writing this fall, it's been seven years actually that I've been working with President Wilson here, or about President Wilson. Uh, So much to say about him, but I wanna save my comments for my other subject. But I will say this about Woodrow Wilson. He was a southerner, so it's a different part of the country for me. But what is perhaps, perhaps most interesting, and perhaps for this group especially, interesting about Woodrow Wilson is this. He was the most educated president we have ever had. He was a school teacher, that is a college professor, for most of his life. It was not until Woodrow Wilson was 54 years old, 54. He was president of the College of New Jersey, which had just become known as Princeton University. He was president of that school in 1910 and 54 years of age. And for the first time in his life, he ran for public office and he got elected. He got elected in a sort of fluke situation, got elected governor of New Jersey You with me? 1910, governor of New Jersey. 1912, he's elected president of the United States. Wow. No background in politics, although, as he said, you want to talk politics, try running a college one day. Um, And I think there was great truth in that. Now, within... Within seven years of that, you know, I see the spheres of influence in this man's life widening all the time, these great concentric circles. He starts off, you know, just, you know, basically lord of a classroom and then of a university and then he's running a state and then, well, within the first two or three years of his first administration, he brought about one of the most progressive legislative programs that has ever hit this country. And now, within seven years of his being President of the United States, with the First World War being fought and won, he is now introducing to the world an entire new concept. He's presenting to the world a whole new notion of what the balance of power might be. He is literally redrawing the map of the world, uh, most particularly um, uh, Europe. Um, a, part of, a part of the world that General Clark probably knows better than anybody um, alive today, I dare say. Now, interesting, all three of those men, giants in their fields, interesting, all of them came at it at a point that would have been a second, or in Wilson's case, maybe even a third act in their lives. And now I just want to take a moment or two, again, for one of the reasons Spencer pointed out, we are just an island away from... Charles Lindbergh's burial place, and there is a reason he is there. And I want to tell you why Lindbergh interests me so much and why I think you might be able to carry a bit or two of his life with you. You know, Americans, anyway, I think we are genetically coded knowing two things about Charles Lindbergh. Uh, We all know, even in those classes that that, uh, teacher McCourt told us about, Uh, in between the spitballs and the lunches and all that and getting him to digress, uh, in some history classes in this country, we do learn these two things about Charles Lindbergh. One is that in 1927, Lindbergh, a 25-year-old airmail pilot, somehow, miraculously, all by himself, flew a single-engine plane from New York to Paris, 33 and a half hours alone. Upon his return from that trip, or actually even upon the moment he landed, the minute he he hit the ground at Le Bourget Field in Paris, from that moment on, he became the most celebrated living person who has ever lived. From that moment on, from the 150,000 people who greeted him at the airport that night at 1035, Paris time, to the million and a half people who greeted him the next day, to the six million people who greeted him in New York when he came back to this country, to the fact that they literally shut down New York. They shut down the stock exchange, businesses closed, government closed, banks closed. Washington shut down that day. He then went on tour of of America, went to all 48 states, One quarter of the nation turned out to cheer this man, and that was nothing. Then he went through Latin America, went through the Caribbean, same thing everywhere, received by 26 heads of state. Every every honor they could give him, they gave him. They made up a few, in fact. They literally did. That's one thing we know about Lindbergh. The second thing we know, and he felt it was as a result of the first, Because he was this great hero, he also became one of the great victims of the 20th century, and that was because his newborn baby was kidnapped and killed uh, before the baby was even two years old. Charles Lindbergh himself was but 30 years old when that happened. So all that happened by the time he's 30 years old. Now Lindbergh, for all his fame, for all his greatness, all his valor and so forth, was offered in 1927 from all sorts of industries we heard about just moments ago, about $5 million worth of endorsements. Now this is 1927 I'm talking about. This is when 5 million really bought you something. This was really $5 million. He turned it all down. And this is what interests me about Charles Lindbergh. Not that he turned down the money, That's all fine to take money or not take money. But what Charles Lindbergh did for the rest of his life to me is far more interesting than the flight to Paris or that he was the helpless victim victim of the crime of the 20th century.